0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Wealth Tech Show. This is the podcast that looks at the technology that is powering personal and professional finance and investing. And today we're looking at the investment platforms market. I'm Ian Horn, and believe it or not, not, I'm not hosting alone today. Uh, Chloe Millay, thank you for helping with this one. And and Chloe, you're relatively new at CityWire. Tell us a bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, hello. Um, I'm Chloe. I joined CityWire a month and a half ago now, and I am covering platforms, which is um, a little bit niche, but a very interesting space that I'm excited to discuss today with our guest.
0: Yes, and that brings me on to our guest. We have the ideal guide for the platforms market today uh, because the interviewee is Bella caridad Ferreira, CEO of Investment Fund Research House Fundscape and Joint Managing Director of Finscape, which is a provider of end-to-end insights on the investment distribution market. So, Bella, hi. Hello. Great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. So, look, I'm going to give you a chance to make a, a proper introduction to yourself in, in just a second. But first, do you, do you basically just know all the big trends in investing?
2: Uh, do I know all the big trends in investing? Well, I, I have to know the trends in investing. So I spend a lot of time, you know, monitoring what's going on, obviously looking at data and so on. Um, but so I know broadly what's going on. And also because I'm on the outside of the in, of the industry, I'm not at a fund management company, I'm not at a platform. It allows me to have a sort of a, a, a more sort of complete view of the world. Yeah. And often if you're if you're at a platform or a fund manager it's a little bit siloed you know your bit of the business but nothing else
0: yeah I mean that's interesting you, you've kind of got an independent perspective you're not swayed by any corporate sponsors perhaps
2: not me no 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 I don't <laughs> <laughs> my stuff is completely independent some of my competitors are swayed by uh, by sponsors but no you, you know you can't pay to play with me I'm afraid so
0: <laughs> okay well well Tell us about your work then. Tell us more about uh, Fundscape and also Finscape. I realise that's a massive question. They're two companies that do a lot of different things. Yeah. Okay. But if you can, yes. So, sum it up uh, for us. so
2: I start. I'll start with uh, Fundscape. Well, we we started out really um, uh, about twelve years ago, just writing a really simple report. We just, you know, we we used to write a, you know, We wrote about funds and what was happening in the fund market, and we gathered that data, um, and then. And you know, at the time, platforms were sort of starting to become really important, um, and that was the bit that really interested me. One, I'm into te- technology, and two, I wanted to know what was going on. So I asked a couple of the platforms, "How much do you have under management, and how much, you know, have you got flowing through?" And it started off as a sort of Word document, really, with just a couple of tables and a pie chart, and, and that was it. And it's grown, you know, 12 years later to, to become the, the f- flagship report in the, in the platform industry. So it's really, really big, with hundreds and um, hundreds and hundreds of, of readers. Um, and I speak to every platform CEO on a quarterly basis, uh, you know, and sit down with them or have a call with them and get their views for the report so so it's you know i'm showing my age here really so <laughs> i'm looking back on on a sort of a long career that's uh, that has developed over time so it may seem like you know you know when i am looking back it has taken quite a bit of time but it just seems to have happened really really quickly um, so that was so we And so really developing from that, we, we just really got inter- interested in, in distribution because um, I suppose the I'm going to give you an analogy. You can have a, a, a brilliant product, an absolutely brilliant product, but if you don't know how to get it to sh- into shops and shop windows and so on, then you can't sell it you know so you distribution is key to investments and that's really where you know i started getting involved into the whole distribution thing so platforms just how the market works the advice channel the wealth channel the d2c channel and so on and that really um, encouraged me to develop finscape and finscape was is a is a startup um, and we sat down about 3 years ago in 2019 and um I knew what I wanted, I, you know, because it's, it's a really long, long value chain. If you're a fund manager and your end consumer is right at the other end and you've got all these platforms in the middle, how do you know what your, what your clients are interested in? How do you know what they're buying, what they're saving for, what they're investing for? That is like a big black hole sitting in the middle. So we wanted to come up with a solution that would allow a fund manager to monitor what was happening in the market, see how he was doing against the against the world against the sectors etc see which advisors might be interested in buying them buying his funds and so on so that's essentially we sat down in 2019 and and tried to uh, and design that 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 tool and we knew it was going we realized it was going to cost us several million to develop it and that's not something we could do as a small research house Um, so we went out and spoke to altus um, who are our uh, joint venture partners, and Altus um, was exactly the right fit because they are a consultancy and also they develop business systems for financial services. And one of the systems they develop is um, they they have the transfer gateways. If you're on one platform and you want to move to another, then you you use the Altus system, and they track and make sure that nothing gets lost on the way, and they move it all the way through the custodians and subcustodians, etc. Um, so they were the perfect partners. Uh, so we sat down, designed the product, launched it in twenty twenty just before the pandemic. Um, but even even though even though that happened, and despite that, we were able to go out and recruit all the platforms So we've got 14 platforms on board now um, and we've got some great fund manager clients schroders was our very first uh, you know big anchor client bailey gifford and other really large fund managers so a real testament to the work we've done and our research and our knowledge of the market and i think that's that was the key thing as between the, the three business partners running finscape we had unrivaled knowledge of the market and uh, of what needed to be done.
0: Yeah, and on that, on that you were hoping to have 97% um, coverage of the retail platform market by the end of March. Yes. Did you achieve it?
2: So we're at 88% because um, we just have, we have one, and so we had Quilter and Aberdeen on board. We have one more platform, to get, that's True Potential. So once we've got True Potential on board and we expect that to happen in the next couple of months, then we will have achieved it. What I want to point out, though, is that, nobody else has got true potential on board either. So once we've achieved, we've already matched and surpassed other people's coverage. So once we get true potential on board, we will be at almost 100% um, coverage, which would be brilliant, so. Yeah, and, and
0: actually to pick up on something you said a fair bit earlier, you were talking about how, you know, it's all about distribution to a point. You have these great new solutions might pop up in the market, but unless they're being distributed, people might not know about them. and. You see similar things in fintech as well. Some of these exciting new propositions and some of the most exciting tech that I see is being designed by people who perhaps have no expertise in marketing it to the industry. You know, how often do you see funds come along that, you know, for all intents and purposes, appear to be very good but just never gain any traction?
2: Oh, All the time, all the time. Um, you know, a lot of people who are very clever at money, uh, managing money unfortunately also believe in their their ability to do everything so they'll set up a little boutique and go well I can you know I can manage the money and I can market it and I don't need anyone else to help me but unfortunately in this world managing the money is just one tiny bit of it you need to get your name out there you, you, you guys understand this right you know you need to market it you need to have salespeople knocking on doors you need to promote it this is a really crowded busy market like every market we have because of technology we are bombarded with information you know if you, you, you only have to you search for one thing on the internet and for the next twelve days or three weeks you get the same adverts don't you so it's, you're just bombarded with information um, so yes, we come across lots and lots and lots of funds that are in that in that situation. And they make the mistake of thinking, well, we'll, we'll try to get some f- sales in first before we then recruit someone to sell the fund. But that's actually a mistake. You do need to invest in sales and marketing mm-hmm. right at the very outset.
0: So it's not as simple as just being on the right platform?
2: It's not as simple as just being on the right platform because your fund can be on all the platforms. But if the advisors don't know about it, then... Uh, you know, the platform is not going to market it for you. And if you go onto a platform, there are thousands of funds. So how do you expect your fund to stand out? Yeah. You know, it's a bit like going into the supermarket, right? You know, there are hundreds of uh, baked beans brands or whatever. It's So you have to stand out. Um, and that might be, you know, by doing joint promotion with the supermarket or the platform and getting more... Um, more prominence, but really you've got to do your own sales and marketing efforts.
0: Yeah, and and do you think that might change at all if, you know, investment selectors become more data-driven? Do you think that might drive people away from conventional marketing?
2: So it already does. So that's one of the things that Finscape does, right? So um, it's using the power of data to drive your sales and marketing efforts. Because what happens in a lot of the old school ways that, that people take a scattergun approach and they just go, right, I'm just going to email everybody. And you know, and they're wasting time and effort rather than actually using data science to sit down and say, right, who's interested in this product? Who act, who's actually buying it? So through Finscape, for example, you could go in and see all the, all the advisor firms or all the uh, wealth managers that are actually interested in your type of product. And then you can see all the ones that have actually been investing more and more. So they're the ones. You then get a a little curated list and they're the ones you target. So it's about using. So one of the things that we say with Finscape is, you know, it levels the playing field for boutiques and micro boutiques because rather than they don't have to recruit hundreds of salespeople, they can recruit a really good data person and another, you know, then a good salesperson and that combination is going to give them some really clever insights you know, so if they want to organize an event in the northeast of england they can run you know i want to know everyone who's interested in for example multi-asset products um you know that buy single strategy funds up there you can run that list and invite those people rather than sort of just sending a blanket email to sixty thousand advisers advisors in the country
0: yeah Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I'm going to bring Chloe in in just a second. But uh, one more question before I do that, or before we do that. Um, 2021 was actually a record year for platforms. Yeah, despite lockdowns and everything else going on um you know I read one of your recent press releases it noted that assets rose 19% to 930 billion which is a huge amount and and gross and net flows reached new highs of 164 billion and 68 billion uh, new highs also and the 68 billion increase in net flows was actually an 89% increase from 2020 yeah. so i think the question i have there is is what happened
2: so really really interesting isn't it because you know if we go back to 2020 obviously people were very nervous about the pandemic so they you know they they sat on the fence they put their money into cash they they didn't really invest it etc but as time goes on you know you can't sit on the fence forever you've got to invest there's huge demand for you know for pensions pensions is what is what drives you know investment in, on platform so huge demand so so you had this sort of wall of cash that had been developing in 2020 and that started to come in um, you know, obviously, uh, we had some good news. We had some good news in terms of, you know, the, the vaccines at the end of 2020. We had some good news with the, you know, Biden coming in and replacing Trump in the White House. So, you know, various bits of good news suddenly, you know, galvanized the market into into investing. Um but, but ultimately, the other thing is that, you know, interest rates, inflation is starting to rise and people have to, you know, have to invest. There's always a bit of a lag. So, yes, interest rates are rising, but they're not rising fast enough. So if you you really do need to invest in this market, otherwise your money is shrinking year yeah. on year.
0: And are you already seeing the, the flight from cash now?
2: Yeah, uh, absolutely, people. But but with once interest rates start to climb or if they climb any higher, people are going to go... I'm, I'm okay with, you know, we're in an uncertain environment. I'm okay with, with my money in a bank. Unfortunately, people are very, very careful. Um, and, you know, some of them are very risk averse. So I think we'll see, We it's, it's a dual sort of thing, really. You see money going into investments, but you will also see a rise of money going into cash. I think we'll see both. Um, but there's huge amount of demand, you've got baby boomers retiring, that money is coming into into the platform industry because of uh, you know we we've removed um, people have because of pension freedoms people can invest their pension money how they like, um, so that's given people a lot of a lot of opportunity.
1: Mm. Um, so, yeah, so now to talk about um, something maybe a little less exciting than record growth. Oh, don't say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, regulation and, and regulatory pressure. Um, what are the implications of the consumer duty rules for the platform market? Um, because rules are supposed to align with client interests. So how much of this was already being done by platforms and how much of it... Um, so this being the, the
2: implications of the consumer duty, not just for platforms, but for fund managers is massive. OK. And I think a lot of people do not understand a lot of fund management companies in particular do not understand. They think they're out of scope. But if you've got a product and it ends up in an investor's portfolio, then you are in scope. Mm-hmm. And so people need this is going to be a huge, huge piece of leg- legislation and uh, much bigger than MiFID too. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take people. We haven't got much time either to implement it. I think it's got to be done by April, no, April next year. So I think that's right, yeah, April 23. So there's a huge amount of work to be done. And it's not easy. What isn't easy is to, um, to automate it because it's got to be really in your DNA. Is it good for the customer? So writing programs around this is going to be really, really hard. It's about getting right into the DNA and the culture of the firm and, and thinking and changing the way firms think. And unfortunately, that isn't the way firms think, right? They don't think um, about, you know, they think about their bottom line. Yes, they think about the consumer, but they're, you know, they're not going to change the fees on a fund if it's going to affect their bottom line, not willingly anyway. Um, so... There's got to be a lot of navel-gazing, a lot of thinking about the culture and so on. And some some firms are going to really, really struggle with that. And I don't, you know, I actually think it's going to be more of a problem for fund management companies than it is for platforms. How so? Because a lot of the fund management companies think they're out of scope and they've literally just dismissed it. And so, but if you have a product and it ends up in the the consumer's... um, in a consumer's portfolio, then you are in scope. And therefore you have to start thinking about the consumer. Is this right for the consumer? Is this the right outcome? And, and thinking about all of those things. And that's gonna be hard, really hard. We don't have much time.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so now to talk about um, consolidation a little bit. The um, Aviva succession deal was obviously a big um, a big discussion. Um, it was last month. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being at our a new model advisor conference um, with a lot of advisors a couple of weeks back, and it was all that advisors could talk about really. Um, so I was wondering what are some of the concerns that advice firms have um, with regards to consolidators and the related kind of potential shift from a planner led to a provider led proposition?
2: I think, the, I think the main, one of the issues that we have really is that if we go back 20 you're you're too young for this Chloe, right but yeah. if we go back <laughs> a I can't look at me either Bella <laughs> If we go back to the bad old days right mm-hmm. or the good old days or the bad old days as I used to call it it was very much a product led environment so it was mm-hmm. an ecosystem you bought a product from an insurer and you know and that was it and it, they decided what went into it and they completely controlled the product the pricing the performance the whole lot and then, you know, the, the tech uh, doom, uh, boom and bust years happened, and open architecture and guided architecture came into the industry. And that created demand, that com- created competition, that brought prices down and all of that, um, So, which was, a, which was really, really good for the market. But then if you move along to, you know, to, you, you move to today... We've had RDR and that's put huge pressure on on firms and what that means is that they, they don't have that captive distribution anymore because what used to happen before RDR is that if you wanted to sell a fund you would say to an advisor I'm going to give you a really good commission on this fund so of course they sold more funds and that's gone now they can't do that and suddenly they've got to go out and sell in a way that they're not used to selling it's taken them all this time and they're still not used to selling like this and that's to you know sell it on the merit of the product and you know and, and so on so what do they what do they do what's the way around that the way around that is to buy distribution and how do you buy distribution you buy your own advice firm you buy your own wealth firm you buy your own platform and you 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 vertically integrate you make sure that you capture the next slice of the of the of the the value chain okay so for for advisors yes that's a concern because if they're looking at somebody like Aviva they might go well Aviva's going to, you know, they've got their own, all their own um, advisors through Succession Wealth now. What does that mean for me as an independent advisor? Are they going to try and take my business and stick it into their own? So those are some of the concerns that they'll have. I don't think it's, I don't think they're necessarily valid concerns. They may decide to move to another platform. But I think Aviva um, and other platforms already have small captive, you know, advice arms, um, what they need to do is make sure that the two are managed separately and that there's no there's no leeching from, from one to another if you like if I answer the question I can't remember
0: <laughs> <laughs> well when these things happen do you often get an immediate insight into where the funds are flowing do you, do you see any immediate changes to how people are investing when they become part of a bigger company
2: Yes, we do get we do get quite a lot of uh, that business. We can we can see what's happening there. Definitely, um, I mean, you know, it's interesting because if you take somebody like um, Standard Life Aberdeen or Aberdeen as they are now, um, they've got their own funds, et cetera, But their own funds are not a massive part of the of their platform business. So they're quite arms length, and they don't, you know, they're not really forcing um, advisors. You know they're not sort of ramming uh, Aberdeen funds down their their advisors throats they maybe they should do um, because that's what other platforms are doing you know if you take AJ Bell for example AJ Bell you know it's got its own funds it's got its own models etc and it's very 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 you know strong on pushing its own products at its advisors. And and they do that on the basis that, you know, if you invest in on our platform into our funds and our models, you're going to to be saving money. You know, you you take out some of the, the costs, which is therefore attractive for the advisor and his client, because fundamentally, there's two ways to make money in this market. Fees. Lower fees and good asset allocation. So if you reduce the fees at every stage of the process, the, you know, the platform, the funds, the models, etc., then you are going to improve your investor outcomes if the performance is also right. So yes, we can see why, why that is happening and why vertical integration is taking off.
0: So that's, that's really fascinating because there, there's a 2021 uh, financial advice business benchmarks report from NextWealth, which found uh, that clients of firms of over £500 million of AUN pay more on average, in particular, for the investment proposition and advice. So how does that square up to, to what you've just said there about the idea of vertical integration bringing... You know, lower prices for the end client.
2: No, no, I'm not saying that they necessarily bring lower prices for the end like client, but I'm saying that so. theoretically, so yes, absolutely. I don't know about Next Wealth's Report. I've never read it, so I can't really yeah. comment on it. Um, I would, maybe disagree on some on the, on that on for certainly from some of the stuff I've seen. I think if you if you look at, um, you know, as I said, if you look at somebody like uh, well, Vanguard is a really good starting point. Like Vanguard has its own platform its own funds etc you can buy a pension on on Vanguard and run the whole thing for 50 bips so you know mm-hmm. uh, and that's vertically integra- vertical integration um again on you know on Quilter you've got some good you've got some I mean that's Quilter is, is a bit more expensive but they have their own funds their own um platform their own uh, wealth manager so that wealth management overlays free and uh, where mm-hmm. you might pay for that elsewhere uh, but, yeah, sorry, I can't comment no, on the no next wealth. But is, it, is this potentially
0: where the consumer duty rules come into play? Because if you are moving, if you are vertically integrating and you can't demonstrate that that's of benefit to the client, does that create a problem? No, I,
2: I think so. I think everybody thinks that. And I actually, I think that the uh, what the FCA wants, what the regulator wants, is more professionalism in the industry. And if if you take the advice market, 89% of advisors in our, in this market are in firms with fewer than five advisors. Now, that means that those small firms cannot do the full scope of, you know, how they should really look after clients properly. If you're just a one-man band or a two-man band or a three-man band, you're not going to have the resources and what you need to really look after the consumer. So what the FCA wants is bigger firms, OK? And, and so the upside to that is bigger firms, consolidation, etc. The downside to that is going to be some vertical integration. But I think that the FCA is also pragmatic because if the performance is as good as what you would be getting elsewhere if, you know, if it's all comparable and you can show and demonstrate that it's comparable, um, I don't think that's going to be an issue for the FCA. It would be an issue, of course, if you're charging thirty, you know, BIPs or something for really poor performance and you can get Half of that for much better performance elsewhere. So as long as there's some c- c- comparable numbers and comparable performance, I don't think it. I don't think the regulator's got a problem with it at all.
1: Mm. Um, to continue on uh, vertical integration, um, do you think that customer-centric financial planning and vertical integration are ultimately compatible?
2: No, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no. Uh, ultimately, not. Um, I don't think that. You know, true sort of financial... I think there's a couple of things, really. I think um, the role of an advisor is a lot more than just the investment bit. And I think we mustn't forget that. Um, I would almost say that the financial advice planning is almost like a 10-stage process. And the 10th bit is selecting the investments. Um, You know, you've got to do fact finds, planning all sorts of things to me financial advice is a life coach business really you know because if it's not about just it's not about selling a product or selling an investment it's about understanding what you want to achieve out of your life so you want to retire early you know you want you, you, then you, this is what you're going to have to do you're going to have to invest more uh, cut back on expenses you know so it's, it's more of a life coaching thing and that can be done in a vertically integrated business but and then you know and then the last bit is is the investment um bid, which obviously would be um restricted products by that by that firm so that can be done um and we've got some good and bad examples of vertically integrated businesses in this world. quite happy to say s j. p. is the worst. Um, absolutely expensive, you know, horrendously expensive, takes six years or more to get out of their products, but their clients love them. So they're getting something right. You know, you talk to any SJP client and they're they're ferocious in their defense of them. So they're obviously really, really good at sitting down and talking to their customers and the cultural side of it, they've got down to a T. And that is something we can learn from SJP, okay? Okay. but yes, to be, I think to be really, truly, truly independent, it, it's hard to do that in a vertically integrated firm.
0: Mm-hmm. And and do you think consolidation and M&A activity is I- inevitable, or do you do you anticipate some kind of you know backlash to it? Because this has been a, especially the advice market has been quite fiercely independent for a long time, and for a lot of advisers, the idea of being part of a, a larger organisation, while it might be. In a regulatory sense desirable otherwise might not be do do you think there's any stopping this i
2: think i think I think it makes sense right you if you want to have a professional industry, then having lots of little one man bands and two man bands isn't the right way to go um, you know they they just cannot they're not going to have the bandwidth to do everything properly, and they're not going to have. You know, you need people to do the planning. You need people to... There's so much to do. So it makes sense to have bigger firms. Um, It's also a scale thing. And there's also the whole investment process thing. You know, it's easy for financial... I've seen some terrible financial advisors who literally just open the newspaper, pick an investment, and that's it. Um, You know, but so if you're part of a large firm where you've got a whole unit that's dedicated to the investment process, they can... They can design the funds. They can do say this is what you give a risk profile five. This is what you give a risk profile four. These are the models that we've put together. These are performing well. It's so the advisor doesn't even have to think about the investment bit, and they can focus on the planning and the life coaching bit with the with the consumer. Um, and that's that's the important bit. And I think so. I. I do believe that you can be independent as part of a... They don't have to be huge firms, but I think they need to be bigger. I don't think one-man bands are necessarily uh, the right way to go.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: And what do you think is Consolidator's kind of long-term
1: strategy if they actually have one? Is it all about ownership of client assets, or is there a bigger picture there?
2: Oh, that's that's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, we've seen succession wealth, obviously, you know, succession... Um, was sold to uh, Aviva. Mm -hmm. That was an interesting one. Um, They've been consolidating. They used to use the uh, M&G wealth platform, so it was a surprise that they'd decided to go with Aviva and maybe not with with M&G or even have that discussion. But ultimately, yeah, these firms are, they they have an eye on the door. They've got an exit plan. It's a five to eight year thing. Consolidate, consolidate, develop scale, make it a really strong. So I don't think they necessarily want to be part of a big um, life company or part of a bigger group, but they do want to have scale themselves so that they can dictate, pricing you know it means that you know if you're a large advice firm you can talk to financial to fund managers and and say and make some price demands say no cut this we're going to be buying these funds in these models we want some better pricing so you know they're improving will try to improve outcomes for for their consumers um but yes ultimately i think there, there's always an aim to keep selling at the moment i think we're in a bit of a PE bubble um mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of money flooding into the market. You know, we, you know we're, we're, we've gone from public to, to private. There's a lot of money coming in, mainly because you couldn't really make any money um, in, in the public market for, for a few years. So it's all gone into private equity and, and that's driving that, this little bubble. But I, I do think it's a bubble. And I do think these sort of P driven football style, crazy prices won't last forever.
0: Interesting. And for the last part of this podcast, I want to talk again just about platforms kind of outside of M&A and consolidation. Uh, just here's a straightforward question for you. Uh, what are platforms doing right at the moment? I mean, bearing in mind this is a, a wealth tech podcast, and I feel like diff- in financial services, not everyone is on the same level when it comes to technology uh, integration and adoption and all the rest. Uh, which platforms are doing the best job right now?
2: So, uh, look, um, one of my unsung heroes at the moment is the Fidelity platform. Because so I think they've just, you know, firstly, they replatformed. It took them, you know, three or four years without a hitch. So they did that without, you know, without losing a load of customers, without upsetting people. They took their time. They did it properly. But, over, you know, they're very much below the radar. But over the last, you know, three f- years, they've worked really hard to provide the solutions their advisors want. And what they do is they work Side by side with advisors, they bring them in, and you know, so before designing anything, and what they used to do, what all platforms do, is they design what they think advisors want, and then show them afterwards, and, and the advisors go, "Well, okay, I wouldn't necessarily work like that." But what the way Fidelity works is they sit down with advisors and say, "Right, show us how you, you know, what's the how you would approach this in your everyday life? You know, if you're setting up a new client, what would you do?" You know how what how, what would you prefer for the system to do? So they design it with the advisors side by side, and I think that's really really collaborative, and uh, you know it means and it means that they get a lot of buy-in and they they get it right. They get it right much more often than they than than they get it wrong. So so yeah, I really like Fidelity and what they've been doing recently, and that's you know, Jackie Boylan is the is the the head of advisor platforms there, and you know. She's female and Aussie and pragmatic, and that's probably why. So yeah. <laughs> women in finance. Exactly.
0: <laughs> and Aussie's in finance as well. And right? Aussie's exactly. in finance, yes. of course. <laughs> the best two groups. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, just also to um, you know, a different different angle on this, the retail market obviously has been increasingly uh, using platforms we saw that last year especially with the meme stocks that was for me i'm i'm so curious about that whole development but but memes aside for just a second are you seeing the the retail activity having any impact on the way that platforms are operating for professionals are are there lessons being learned from this
2: oh lots and lots of lessons i think there's it's really interesting what's happened so if we go back to 2020 and suddenly all these young people were at home and um didn't have any bars restaurants or anything or sports to bet on or anything at all so all their sort of where they would might spend a, a large part of their disposable income had disappeared but equally, they were furloughed and they you know, perhaps lost their jobs, had rents to pay, etc. And I think and what the pandemic did was it was a perfect storm because number one, they realised how financially vulnerable they were. You know, um, a lot of people don't have much in the way of savings. Um, and and so and then being at home with all their sort of usual pastimes gone, um, you know, once you've, you've decorated your house and tidied your drawers and cleaned out the cupboards, what's left? Well, you start focusing on your finances. And I think that that helped. And then, of course, we were all at home, these meme stocks started to happen. Um, so what it did is it, it woke up um, younger cohorts, in particular, to investments and savings and everything else, their fa- financial vulnerability and how they wanted to, imp- to get rid of that. So the meme stocks were a you know, a big thing that they first got into, but that trading's carried on, and and so yes, of course we had a big a big uh, jump in, in flows, and it subsided a bit, but it's still much stronger than it ever was. So this, so last year, for example, in twenty twenty one, with record flows we've we've predicted that the uh, direct market will grow um, at around 25% a year for the next 5 years compared to the advised market which will grow around 18% for the next so it's it's going to grow faster uh, which is really interesting and and it's going to grow faster one of the big problems with the direct market is again like i've said before is how do you get your product out there how do you tell people you know that you exist. So customer acquisition costs are really really high. Um, because of that and that's the big problem because and you you know you, you get on the tube you see Nutmeg advertising money farm and so on. That costs money. It costs a huge amount of money and people may not realize that they need that that stuff. Um so that's why you're going to see the likes of um you know Nutmeg has been bought by Chase so that's a bank and that's absolutely ideal because the bank will go, here's your current account, here's everything you need. By the way, you should be investing because you've got, you know, £5,000 or £10,000 sitting in your deposit account. Have you thought about investing? So that sort of cross-selling bit is ideal. So, um, you know, um, um, uh, automated investment process combined with a large bank or is absolutely ideal. Um, you've seen... M&G have also um, done a deal with Money Farm, so we're going to see something similar there. And and also, um, Nutmeg also did a deal with John Lewis, and I think we're going to see more of those kind of deals. John Lewis was already in the investment, you know, they've got credit cards and, and so on, um, and other financial services. So... S- cross-selling investments is also really really good um, and we, we probably will see other deals like that as well so a big parent or a big sort of big um, wealthy company that can support a smaller one and has a captive distribution client base so
0: yeah and and how much of an insight into those fund flows will you see because Obviously, the meme stocks are kind of instructive in that these are, are highly volatile, high-risk investments, much like we're seeing in crypto. You know, a lot of retail traders seem to be taking on more risk than they would have, you know, been allowed to through an advisor. Are you are you seeing an increase in interest in in the more risky investments and in asset classes?
2: So I think you you are definitely going to have more a bit more risk. There's there's more traders for sure, but those. The, the D2C platforms, their job now, they've got all these customers on board, is to say, this is great, but to target guidance and education, you know, at people you've got you've got the you've got them as customers your job is now to educate and sort of say look this is great you're doing this but have you thought about in you know investing in a pension for a longer term doing it? so that's that's their job and h- how they do that is going to be is going to be hard but we're seeing you know if you take harper's lands down they've just announced they're going to spend 175 million and do all sorts of um, you know Upgrade their technology, um, move into the advice space because they realise that advice and hybrid advice is really where the future is. So, that's the point. You know, you to what you need to do is is focus on the hybrid advice. How can you combine advice with automation? And that could be people go through a, a questionnaire, answer a few questions, and then it guides them into the right place. And I think that's the real growth area, and that's where the 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 advised market and the direct market are going to meet and converge
0: and one thing because i touched upon it and I have, to, I have to i feel like i have to discuss it quite frequently is, is cryptocurrency obviously that's harder to, i assume harder to track is it oh, it's
2: really hard to track and it's utter bollocks sorry, can I just, <laughs> sorry i did i did warn you that i might i might no, swear that's, during this so i apologize um crypto is not a currency and it's not, an, it's not an investment, it is speculation. If you're going to put your money into, we've actually tracked this um, and, you know, we, we actually try to, to invest. We, you know, it's impossible, you can invest and then, and then it's going up, it's going up, so you put some more in, then it drops down and then you panic. I mean, you know, it's so volatile. But the fact is that if it's a currency, and this is, it's a misnomer, if you call it a currency, you should be able to buy something with it. And you can't buy anything with crypto, not even Tesla, not even, you know, Elon Musk might, you know, can, can say, say all he wants about crypto. But the fact is that he won't take crypto for a car because he'd be too worried that if, you know, you've given him, you've given him a thousand crypto coins for a car and then the next day they're, they're valueless, they're worthless. So that's the big problem. Um, so I think until they are, they are a proper currency, you are doing nothing more than just speculating on something that doesn't exist. There's no gold. There's no underlying investment. There's no tangible asset there. So what are you investing in? And I think what really worries me is all the young people who are taking out loans or putting their student loans, you know, everything into into crypto because all their friends are doing it. My PA's daughter rang up, you know, at the beginning uh, when when all this was happening saying, Mum, should I put all my money into crypto? All my friends are doing it. And we said, no. We wrote a blog post about it, you <laughs> know. We said... No, we have you know, daughters, PA, absolutely do not do that. And it's hard because some of them have made money. And some of, you know, like anything, some people have caught on. They were the early adopters. They invested, they've made money and they're out or, you know, they might still be in it. And so but anyone who comes in, you know, when it's when everyone's talking about it, it's too late. Um, and I think the other thing to, to be aware of is, yes, there are people in the industry or famous people like Elon Musk and others who are promoting it but they're not putting their life savings into crypto they're not putting their student loan or their you know their last 100 quid in so that's the big difference what they're putting in is like the equivalent of a few quid that you know they're just speculating and they can afford to speculate so that is my message to everyone absolutely feel free to speculate but don't put everything don't put all your eggs in your in one basket you know, put in what you can afford to lose. It's a bit like going out. If you're going to go out and spend 200 quid on a good night out or go to a casino and spend that, you know, on at the poker table or something like that, then 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 do that. But it is no more than speculation.
0: Yeah, we hear that response a lot to, to crypto. I, I guess when it comes to investing in it, though, are you seeing any... Um, you know, uptick in interest in certain vehicles. So, you know, investing in crypto via an ETF or something like that. Are you seeing growth in that space? Not really.
2: No, not at all. So I think it is really, you know, tiny. The flows are just com- really tiny compared to what you're seeing elsewhere. So no more than sort of, you know, biotech or, you know, interestingly because of all the viruses, you know, the virus um, and the the vaccines, we're more likely to see an uptick in um, biotech and pharma um, ETFs, that kind of thing. Uh, so but then then crypto yeah. currency ones.
0: Okay. I think that's all from me. Chloe, you got any questions? That's
2: all from me too
0: brilliant all right well look, bella thank you thank you for joining us that was oh, really thank inter- you it was thank I was,
2: you so much I, i'm conscious that i rambled loads <laughs> <laughs> don't worry that's, that's positively encouraged <laughs> on this podcast
0: do not worry anything that i host cannot have a rule against that so we're all good um look thank you for coming again
2: uh, thank you for inviting me it's been a pleasure
0: and and chloe thank you for co-hosting great to have you involved
2: uh, yeah. thank you so much
0: and finally of course if you've been listening in and if you're hearing this of course you have been thank you (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much for joining us and we'll be back again next week